Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Today's very special guest does not suffer fools. I think the problem with people like this is that they are so stupid that they have no idea how stupid they are. You see, if you're very, very stupid, how can you possibly realize that you're very, very stupid? You'd have to be relatively intelligent to realize how stupid you are. There's a, a wonderful bit of research by a guy called David Dunning at Cornell, who's a friend of mine, I'm proud to say, who's pointed out that in order to know how good you are at something requires exactly the same skills as it does to be good at that thing in the first place, which means, and this is terribly funny, that if you're absolutely no good at something, at all, then you lack exactly the skills that you need to know that you're absolutely no good at it. And this explains not just Hollywood, but almost the entirety of Fox News. This is The Last Lab. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and on today's episode, Zooming in from across the pond, it's the one and only John Cleese. I was absolutely thrilled to get the opportunity to speak with the Monty Python co-founder, who turned 80 years old last fall, and he did not disappoint. Most legendary comedians of his age would be relaxing at home during a global pandemic, but John has been hard at work putting together his first ever live stream comedy show called Why There Is No Hope which he tells me all about in this episode. There were so many questions I could have asked John, but with limited time, I think we were able to cover a lot of fascinating ground, including why he's still able to laugh at Donald Trump and which Monty Python bits he believes stand the test of time. He also turned uncharacteristically introspective about his comedy legacy and revealed what is perhaps the biggest regret of his career. Let's get to it. Here's me with John Cleese. Matt? Hello. Where are you? Where are you speaking from? I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, you are? So what's the time? It's, uh, it's nine in the morning here, so it's, I'm beginning my day as you're ending yours. Yes, it's about 5, 5.30 here, I think. Well, I'm in lockdown, strict lockdown, because I got back here last Sunday, so... Oh, really? Yeah. Where were you coming from? I was actually coming from America. I was sitting in Ann Arbor hoping I could have a Canadian work permit, and it never came through. And then they cancelled the film, so I flew back here, and I'm not even allowed to cross the street. Anyway, Matt, you just fire away. Ask me anything you want. Thank you. Um, well, I'm excited for your live stream event that's, that's coming up. Why There Is No Hope, is that the title? That's right. And a lot of people think that I mean it humorously, but of course I don't. <laughs> and this was something, so it's a very fitting title for this moment because, you know, we're in this kind of dark moment in history right now. But this is something you've been working on for quite a while, right? For a very long time. I used to go a lot to Esalen up on Big Sur. I've been there once. Beautiful. Oh, staggering part of the world. Only trouble is the roads keep disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Landslide. 
And I remember sitting there one evening talking to a number of the guys who'd met at Essel, and I was there for some meeting, and uh, I suggested that as a title. And this is probably more than 15 years ago. It appealed to me, and I just started to collect information. And then I thought to myself, our audience is going to like this. About two years ago, I did two experimental shows in theaters in Ottawa and Toronto, which is the cities where you get rather bright audience and they liked it much better than I expected so I thought well I must be on to something so I've done it about 20 times now but what the pleasure is I rewrite it every time because there's so much material coming in what can people expect who are who are tuning in to see it well I take them through all the aspects of our society I don't mean there's not you no know, hope for us as individuals it's just there is no hope for us that we could ever live in an intelligent, kind, well-run society. Mainly because most people have no idea what they're talking about. And most people don't really know what they're doing so far as jobs are concerned. Uh, Whenever I meet anybody who's really good at their job, I ask them how many people in your profession really know what they're doing. And the estimate I usually get is 10%. And it started when the psychiatrist, Robin Skinner, and I wrote a couple of uh, books with, and I said to Robin, how many people in your profession? He said 10. And I've never had an estimate higher than 15. Uh, So that means that six out of seven people really don't know what they're doing. They can just follow routines, but if the routines don't work, then they don't understand it at a lower level, and they're like I am when my computer crashes. So that's a starting point, and then we move on to the fact that Most of the people in power are people who seek power. And I talk about why people would seek power. If you look around at the moment, most of the people who seek great power are complete assholes who are really only out for themselves. Well, if someone's out for themselves primarily, like our dear President Donald Trump, with no interest in other people at all, it's not very likely that they're going to be made good at building a society. And you you see that the characteristic of, of people who are powerful is that they have a deep, deep fear of losing their power. Now, I don't know, do you feel, Matt, that you want power over other people? Not generally, no. I don't seek power over other people. No, exactly. Do you? No. (laughs) Because of my relationship with my mother, power to me means responsibility, which I would much rather not have. That's another aspect of it all. And then I query why people who are very, very, very rich always seem to want more money. Right. That's I, that's definitely something I've noticed in, in Hollywood. It's extraordinary, isn't it, how mean they are. I remember doing something once with Steven Spielberg, and I'd met the producer of it. It was Feifel Runs West or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. The cartoon, yeah. If you have any prejudices against cats, you better stay put, because on the frontier, cats and mice help each other. The anointed leader of the cats, a Mr. Cat R. Wall, is one of the most enlightened, intelligent, sophisticated, charming, non-narcissistic, debonair, suave, dashing, renaissance cats you could ever wish to meet. And when they offered me, I thought they'd lost the zero. And no, no, they said, that's what Jimmy Stewart's getting. So I thought, well, I can't ask for more than Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) 
And then they asked me to do publicity, and I said, I can't at the moment, I'm too busy. And then they pressed me, and then I got a personal message Mr. Spielberg saying, please, uh, would you do some publicity of the film? And I, I said, please tell Mr. Spielberg that I never publicize my charitable activities. <laughs> That's a good one. And I, I'm astounded. I mean, when I did Fish Cold Wanderer, I was giving people like the, the, the woman in charge of wardrobe, I gave her a half or quarter of a percent, which for her was a small fortune. And I don't know why people don't spread the money around yeah, a bit. Share the one, wealth. Once you've got enough money, why on earth do you want more? It's actually, I think it's pathological. So with all these things going on, there's very little chance we'll ever have a sensible society. And this has been, at the moment, this is a particularly bad moment because we've got Erdogan and Bashar al-Assad and that loony in North Korea. And, uh, you know, we've got Putin and we've got Xi. I think that's how you pronounce the Chinese president's name. And we have Donald Trump. We have madness and power-seeking and complete unscrupulousness and, and pathological lying. And uh, it's very interesting. Why? Is it because people are very stupid? And that's a possible explanation. Do you feel like you've become more politically engaged with age? Because I think, especially with Monty Python, you know, it was considered silly, certainly subversive, but not overtly political. No, you're right. It, was, it made fun of a lot of social behaviors, but it didn't particularly go after politics. And that was partly because we, when we started Monty Python, the English had just had about 10 years of satire. And they were getting a bit fed up with it. And we were a bit fed up with it. So we kind of deliberately didn't go into those areas. Or if we did, we went into them in a silly way. But right at the moment, I think my pet subject to interest has always been psychology. And as you begin to build up a bit of a knowledge, it just seems a wonderful area where you can make people laugh, but at the same time, tweak their thinking. Mm -hmm. Do you think if you were starting Monty Python now, it would be more political? Oh, I'm not so sure. I think the key to Monty Python was its sheer silliness. And it, it depends. I mean, the funniest thing I've seen of Trump is something on the internet I saw a few days ago when he did person, man, <laughs> yes. woman. Camera TV. Camera TV. And somebody's got him saying that, and it's intercut with a little piece of animation of some sort of very happy little children or little animals jumping around. It. That was from Jimmy Fallon's show, actually. Can you help us? Yeah. Can you say person, woman, man, camera, TV? So it's person, woman, man, camera, TV. Hooray! Person, woman, man, camera, TV. Again! Person, woman, man, camera, TV. One more time! Person, woman, man, Camera TV. We did it! We did it! We did it! Yay! Because I'm cognitively there. And I saw that and I thought, that is foolish, you know? Mm -hmm. In general, are you able to find things funny about Donald Trump? Do you find him funny or do you... Oh, yes. I mean, I laughed out loud twice today at things that he'd said because the, the hypocrisy is so 
so 100% hypocritical that he laughed almost out of astonishment that he would actually make such a blatantly untrue claim. I think there's some very good stand-up performers, but there's not a lot of written comedy these days that excites me. You know, it's not like uh, the old days when I used to discover people, if you see what I mean. I think there's a lot of very good stand-up, but when I see written comedy, I don't see things now as good as Frasier and Cheers and shows like that that I used to think were really wonderfully written. Will Embrace, I always thought, was extraordinarily good. I like Third Rock from the Sun. It doesn't seem to me now that there's the same skill, particularly with structure. And I think the other thing is that a lot of the comedy's gone down market. I mean, when they did that film, what is it? Needs Drunken, the one that was set in Las Vegas, had a tiger in it. Oh, The Hangover. Yeah, Hangover. That's right. And I saw Hangover. I thought it was very funny, but I thought the reason for its success is it requires no general information at all. You know, because younger people know all about drugs and uh, sex, celebrities, and those sort of things. To give you give you a contrast, I've always wanted to do a funny film about 1776. And would just say, don't bother, John, because people don't know enough about it to understand the reference. Well, Hamilton did pretty well, but... <laughs> yes, that's true. It did. But I think that was probably the whole presentation, the music. I don't think it was the comedy. Coming up, John Cleese shares his views on how political correctness has changed comedy over his career, and later reveals the professional decision he says was one of the great tragedies of his life. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The other thing that about, you know, comedy now maybe compared to when you started doing it that everyone talks about is political correctness and what's acceptable and what you can get away with. And I'm curious your perspective on that, because I think it's true in some ways, but in others, I'm sure there are things that you had to cut out of movies or cut out of Monty Python or people were unhappy with that maybe now no one would think twice about. Well, it's changed. I mean, it's it's changed so completely because, for example, we were never allowed to say fuck. I mean, that was absolutely unacceptable. Now nobody turns a hair. There's a huge difference. 
But you, you could make jokes, like in Fortitaris, there was a scene when we made fun of the old major because he was explaining to someone all the names for the different prejudices. And he was quite precise about it. And of course, it was ridiculous. It was making fun of prejudice. But there are so many of the people in PC now who have absolutely zero sense of humor. I mean, I would love to debate in a friendly way with a couple of woke people in front of an audience. And I think the first question I would say is, please tell me a good woke joke. And what they don't understand is that there's two types of teasing. There's really nasty teasing, which is horrible and we shouldn't do it full stop. But the other type of teasing is affectionate. You can tease people hugely affectionately and it's a bonding mechanism it's like in a sports team you know if you go into a sports dressing room men or women and you find that there's constant teasing and pulling of legs and it just has the effect of cementing that bond of friendship so until you realize that there's two types of teasing good and bad you can't expect to understand anything else i mean what you have to point out is that all humor is critical you cannot get laughs out of perfect human beings if you've got somewhere up the screen who is sort of perfect intelligent and kind and flexible and a good person there's nothing funny about that so we only laugh at people's frailties uh, but that's not cruel you can laugh at people's frailties in, in very funny and generous ways i mean nobody thinks that i'm having a go at the human race uh, when people are laughing at basil faulty Manuel, there is too much butter on those trays. There is too much butter on those trays. No, 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 senor. What? Not, not on those trays. No, sir. Uno, dos, tres. No, no, no. I'm mucho burro ali. Okay. I'm mucho burro ali. Ah, mantequilla. What? Okay. Mantequilla. Burro is, uh, is, um, uh, e-o. <laughs> burro. Burro is e-o. Manuel, e Manuel, por, por favor, momento. Si, si, si. si. I, nothing, dear. I'm just dealing with it. Uh, he speak good, uh, how you say? English. Mantequilla. Solamente dos. Dos. Well, don't look at me. You're the one who's supposed to be able to speak it. Don't, two pieces. Two each. Arriba, arriba! Oh, I don't know why you wanted to hire him, Basil. Because he's cheap and keen to learn, dear. And in this day and age... But why such... did you say you could speak the language? I learned classical Spanish, not the strange dialect he seems to have picked up. But you feel like it's gone too far in that woke direction in terms of sensibilities of maybe younger comedians? Yeah, much, much, much mm. too far. It's as though they don't quite understand what they're talking about. And I would love to debate them, as I would say, well, if I make a joke like this or make a joke like that, do you see that people laugh? They like to laugh. They're happy that they laughed, and there's nothing mean about it. But I agree we shouldn't make nasty jokes, but that's about as interesting as saying we shouldn't be horrible to people. <laughs> Are there any jokes or lines or bits from any of the Monty Python movies that you now look back and say, oh, maybe I, we shouldn't have said that? Or do you feel like anything has aged poorly? 
So there were a couple of personal jokes. We made a joke about David Hemmings once, who at that time was a famous actor. We made a joke because we thought his woody, his, his action, uh, sorry, acting was a bit wooden, and we put in the credits that he that he appeared by permission of the National Forestry Commission. And <laughs> when I met him, I thought, actually, he's a very nice guy. And so those kind of personal jokes, uh, once, there's a couple of them that I regret, but by and large, no, because it was a silly show and it wasn't supposed to draw blood or anything like that. And it's not very effective. Uh, comedy as a sort of political weapon is only effective if it is actually has a certain degree of affection in it, because if it doesn't, it just gets nasty and then it doesn't work as propaganda. No, there are scenes, particularly in Meaning of Life, two or three scenes I just didn't think were funny. But I mean, some of the uh, bad taste there, like liver donor sketch, I think it's some of the funniest things we ever did. In Life of Brian, uh, there were some people who were upset, for example, that Brian was crucified at the end. I wanted to say to them, you know, it wasn't the Christians who copyrighted crucifixion. That was the way that the Romans killed a lot of people. You know, when the slave revolt, the Spartacist revolt, when they, there was, what is it, 40 miles of crosses with uh, the slaves there who had revolted against the Roman Empire. That was a standard method of executing. They didn't guillotine them and they didn't put, shoot them in a firing squad and they didn't have electric chairs. So to say we uh, that was disrespectful of the Christian religion is absolutely absurd. Mm-hmm. When you look back at the three big Python movies, Holy Grail, Life of Brian, Meaning of Life, is there one of the films or even one scene that you think of now as sort of above the rest or really exemplifies what you were trying to do at that time? Well, I think there's a couple. The French Taunter is a wonderfully silly scene, and I'm very fond of that. And the Black Knight getting his arms and legs chopped off. Those are two of my favorite scenes. Life of Brian, I think, succeeds much better as an overall film. But I can't think that there's a particular scene in it. Well, possibly the jailers, when the Romans run in and try and get information out of Eric Idle and Terry Gilliam, who are playing, uh, and they, they go into all sorts of exaggerated stuttering. And then when he leaves, they go back to talking normally again. <laughs> I think that's one of the funniest scenes. Have they gone? We, we got lumps of it around the back. What? Oh, don't worry about him, sir. He's mur. He's He's mur. He's 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 mad, sir. Have they gone? Oh, yeah. I. No. 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 Oh, come on. Yes, sir. Anyway, get on with the story. And that again, you see, that would offend people because you're making fun of stuttering people. No, we're not. We were making fun of the fact that somebody used stuttering falsely to uh, avoid having to tell the truth. And then once you get to meaning of life, I do think the liver donor sketch is very funny in the sex lecture. But I don't feel there's anything in there that I want to apologize for about. And I remember doing a BBC interview with a very nice Christian who was uh, the co- correspondent of the BBC, and he was so upset about crucifixion. I've always wondered about crucifixion. Do we believe 
Christ's teaching because it is a very, very, very beautiful teaching? Or do we believe Christ's teaching because he suffered? You know, you've put Dick Cheney on a cross. I would eventually feel sorry for him <laughs> as the weeks pass, but it wouldn't make me any more likely to agree <laughs> with his political opinion. Right. Right? Yeah. You mentioned A Fish Called Wanda, which is, you know, one of my favorite things that you ever did. And it's also, I thought, very interestingly, one of the very few comedies to get significant Oscar nominations and also an Oscar win for, for Kevin Klein, and you were nominated for the screenplay. What have you done with her? She's all right. Otto! Now, apologize. Otto! What? Apologize. Oh, shit. Are you totally deranged? You pompous, stuck-up, snot-nosed, English, giant, twerp, scumbag, fuck-face, dickhead, asshole! How very interesting. You're a true vulgarian, aren't you? You are the Bulgarian, you fuck! Now apologize! What, uh, me to you? Because I think there is this feeling that comedy doesn't get the same respect that drama gets in film. Do you feel that, and do you think it's it should get more, should be held up to the same standards, to the same, uh, you know, as, as drama is? Yes, I believe it should be held to the same standards, but I would also say that, and I give us an example of that, the fact that Charlie Chaplin, who made four movies that are in the top 40 comedies ever made, he's the only person with four of them, never got an Oscar. And that's typical of that attitude. But I'd also say that in recent years, what has passed for comedy is not as classy as what used to pass for comedy, you know, in the days of Catherine Hepburn and, and Cary Grant. I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw a comedy that I thought was really classy. But I'm thinking about uh, ones like, uh, I thought Tin Men was very kind. I loved uh, Roxanne. You know, that there are classy comedies about, but not so much. Yeah, it's been a while since those too. <laughs> well, a long, long while. But if I ask you now, quite seriously, what was the last classy comedy that you saw? What would you come up with? Yeah, I mean, it depends on your definition of classy, I guess. But uh... <laughs> Well, what I mean classy, I mean not unnecessarily vulgar and constructed reasonably subtle way with jokes that actually require a bit of brain power to get some of them. You know, we don't have a lot from five years ago. We don't have a lot from even 10 years ago. So I think this is, honestly, it's, it's a lot of it is to do with the fact that young people are not very curious these days. In, in my day, I'm 80, you know, people were regarded as, as almost obligated to have a, a sort of general knowledge about the world, you know, a bit about geography and where countries are, a bit about history and a bit about psychology. And now what I find in America, a characteristic of a lot of young people is they're just not interested in and that's the stuff, if you can make references to I could make a hilarious film about 1776. Uh, a lot of it would be about the fact that uh, over 50% of the British soldiers spoke German. I mean, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> and people don't know it. So they think you made it up. Do you think that, you know, now you're about 80 years old, I believe, and you've been doing this for so long, 
Do you think about things like what you want your legacy to be and how you want to be remembered for, for your comedy? Well, I put it like this. In the last few years, I've realized that comedy is more important than I thought. When I was in Sarajevo about three years ago, they told me about the siege there when the Serbs were up in the hills lobbing shells and shooting at them with telescopic sighted rifles as they crossed the street. And they used to wait till after dark and they used to go to an underground garage that they converted into a cinema and they used to watch comedy, a lot of it, Monty Python. And uh, they said we felt better afterward. It lifted us somehow. Nothing had changed in the real world. And I began to think about that when I meet people after my stage shows and men of 70 say to me with a, literally with a tear in their eye, thank you for making me laugh for the last 40 years. It's very touching. Women say something different. They say, thank you for helping to form my sense of humor. These are enormously touching compliments. So yeah, that's all. You know, if I've touched people in some way like that, that's all I would want. You know, I don't think they're going to give me a Nobel Prize. <laughs> we end every uh, episode of this podcast by asking comedians, who's another comedian who has made you laugh the hardest or one of the hardest in your life? Who comes to mind as a comedian who really um, makes you laugh? I think Steve Martin went back in the days when he used to write his own comedy scripts. I think I would put him number one. Yeah. We just lost Carl Reiner, who directed him in The Jerk, which is one of the all-time uh, Steve Martin classics as well. Is that one that, that stands out to you? Yes, absolutely. Just wonderfully funny. And Roxanne, I mentioned earlier. I think I put Steve up there. I never thought Robin Williams was as funny as everyone else did. And I never knew why, because I actually knew him and liked him. But, you know, sense of humor is very uh, individual and subjective. Mm -hmm. Is it true? I read that you turned down the role that Michael Caine played opposite Steve Martin in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I know. One of the tragedies of my life, but my second marriage, I think it was my second. I've had so many. It's hard to keep track. Uh, it was a uh, pup in perilous state and I thought I have to go back to England and sort it out and see whether I married or not and that's why I passed and it was also direct I mean it was with Steve good enough anyway but also with the wonderful Frank Oz who's been over the years a good friend of mine I think he's a great director in fact I'm working on a script at the moment it's a light comedy about cannibalism <laughs> and he's told me that I can send him the script I'm very excited Oh, very nice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. And I'm looking forward to uh, to your your live stream event. Yeah. It's uh, great, to, great to meet you, even if it's this way. <laughs> well, it's, it's better than nothing, as I've discovered. I've been doing some fan here, <laughs> but it's quite surprising. You can really make a connection in two minutes. And we've had a good, good whack of time. Yeah. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Pleasure, man. All right. A huge... Thank you to John Cleese for joining me on this week's show. For today only, you can still stream his live show, Why There Is No Hope, by going to johncleese-uniquelives.com. We'll also put a link in the description for this episode. And hey, how about giving this podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts? We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. 
And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by ACAST for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.